the uh, Greco-Roman world uh, that we see portrayed in, in movies and documentaries uh, was known for many things. Uh, we, we, we know of our gladiators and our Colosseum. Uh, they're, they're famous for their infrastructure. Uh, but one of the things that the Greco-Roman world is also famous for uh, are its philosophers. Uh, some of the great thinkers in history uh, go back to uh, the turn from B.C. into A.D. and the time leading up into that. We think of Aristotle and Plato. And uh, one of them is a man named Seneca. Is typically where you see his name, or Seneca the Younger, Lucius Aeneas Seneca. And here's something that he shared about friendship as we launch this series on friendship today. Uh, he said that friendship is a sovereign antidote against all calamities. That friendship is a sovereign antidote against all calamities. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that Seneca's statement is gospel truth. He's a Stoic philosopher. What I am suggesting is that there's a lot of wisdom in his words about friendship. His time thinking about the bond of friends and the significance of friendship leads him to this conclusion that friendship is, it can be, a sovereign antidote uh, against all calamities. And I just want to break that down a little bit as you think about this statement. He's saying that friendship has the power to be an antidote. Now, what is an antidote? An antidote is, is a medicine. It's a way to counteract, to reverse, or to minimize, uh, you know, the, the harmful effects, the destructive effects, sometimes even the deadly effects of, of a poison. Uh, I was researching antidotes here uh, yesterday morning a little bit just to see kind of what was going on in antidote world because, you know, I'm not an expert on that type of thing. And uh, I saw that in spring of this year that they're actually started working on an antidote and they're getting closer to carbon monoxide poisoning, something that can help reverse or minimize the damage caused by carbon monoxide poisoning. We see something in our news every day that is an antidote. You think of uh, Narcan. Uh, that is the, the street like uh, branding name for a medicine that helps counteract the effects of opioid overdose. Opioid overdose. Uh, opioid overdose, uh, as I have my Elmer Fudd moment. Um, but, but antidotes are good for that. They, they help counteract, they help reverse, help minimize the destructive effects of poison. And so we're familiar with antidotes. Maybe you remember cartoons as a child or movies where they're looking for that special antidote that will, will fix things and make things better. And, and here's what Seneca is suggesting is that friendship is a powerful antidote. It can reverse, it can counteract, it can minimize the effects of life's calamities. Now, we may not know a lot about antidotes, um, but we know a lot about calamity, don't we? Um, j just in this room, uh, I think about the, the generations that are represented, and every single person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, has experienced some sort, some form, some measure of calamity, of difficulty, of hardship. Uh, maybe it's uh, a breakup. Maybe it's a broken heart. Uh, maybe it's a betrayal. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's a financial struggle. I mean, it varies across ages and generations, but we all know hardship. I mean, I'm guessing that if you're a student in the room, you know the difficulty or the calamity of 
of some sort of physical trial. Maybe there's an injury, maybe there's a part of your body that's not been working well and you've had to go for surgery or you've got a diagnosis. Uh, Maybe there's a mental health challenge. Maybe you struggle a lot with stress and anxiety. Uh, Maybe there's difficulties at school as students go back to Lebanon schools last week, Western Boone this week. We have students heading off to college. It's like maybe there are struggles there. Maybe there are struggles in relationships in the classroom and on the team. Like, Like the list just goes on and on. And as we age, there are different types of trials and struggles and calamities that we face. Some of you know grief. Uh, You've experienced the death of people that are dear to you. Uh, Some of you experienced the the calamity of the the struggle with infertility. Uh, Some of you even the loss of an infant. And the list just goes on and on. Diagnoses, disease, and crisis. We know calamity. And here is Seneca suggesting that Friendship can be this antidote. It can reverse, minimize, counteract the effects of life's most difficult experiences. And I'm guessing for many of us in this room who are familiar with calamity, we also probably, many of us, know the power of friendship when those hard times come. Many of you right now could probably name for me specific people who when you went through some of your most difficult challenges were there. They were there for you. They were there with you. They called you. They texted you. uh, They brought you things. They filled your refrigerator full of food. You couldn't even eat it all. Like, Like they were there. And you know the power of friendship. It didn't take away the pain. It didn't, it didn't eliminate the poison forever, but, but it has the power to, to help counteract and to help minimize. Who are those friends for you? I look at my own life, and I think of it's 44 years, and I can't remember most of the first six or seven. Now it seems like as I get older, like that window, like I have to move up in what I can remember. Now it's like in five years, it'll be, I can't remember past 10 years old. But uh, I think of all the friends that God has given me, and they have come into my life, and they've been willing to lean in in some of my most difficult moments. Who are those people for you? And the follow-up to that would be is, how have you been that type of friend in someone else's calamity, in someone else's difficulty? As we look at friendship over the next few weeks, one of the things I hope you understand is that we can't control how other people treat us, how other people respond to us. We can't control how, how, how other people, the type of friend they are to us. Uh, but, but we can, through God's power, um, shape the type of friend we are to other people. And similar into a marriage when you can't control the other person's actions, but you can resolve to be the very best spouse you can be. If both of you choose to do that, guess what? You're the best spouse for one another. In friendships, if all of us would agree to be the very best friend we can be, guess what happens? We all experience incredible friendships. And I hope that you'll see a path forward to that. Uh, I think the reason why it's important to look at friendship is there's a crisis of friendship in our world. Um, these messages actually kind of were inspired earlier this year. I, we were studying the, the life of David, looking at lessons on the heart of God from the life of David. And as that series kind of kept going, we were butting up against Easter. So I had to cut some of the messages and they were some messages on friendship from the life of David and Jonathan. And the reason why I felt compelled that we had to speak to friendship is that I look out at the world and I see a crisis of friendship. I even think about my own upbringing. There weren't a lot of lessons taught to me by parents or teachers about what it meant to be a friend and how to be a good friend. 
I had people pull me aside and coach me on how to throw a baseball and how to tackle someone in football and how to shoot a basketball. I had a choir teacher who taught me how to, how to sing, which didn't work. That's why I don't sing. Um, but I can't remember anyone really saying, hey, Craig, let me help you learn how to be a great friend. And if we don't prioritize helping people know how to be a good friend, then we leave it up to chance what we can learn, what we can discover, and that works to some degree. But what if we could look into God's word and see what does it say, what does it teach us about being a really good, a really great friend uh, to other people? I think there's a crisis of friendship for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it's just my observation. I have more and more conversations with people who express how desperately alone they feel. That tells me there must be some sort of crisis when it comes to friendship and connection and relationship with people. I have more and more people share with me how when they went through a difficulty, how those who were their closest friends seemed to be MIA. They weren't even around. And so that tells me there's probably a crisis of friendship. Uh, Another thing that shows me that there's a crisis of friendship is that we live in a world where we are increasingly hurried We're go, go, going, trying to squeeze the very most out of life, squeeze the experiences and squeeze the endeavors and squeeze the stuff that we can accumulate and do. And and, and many of us live with so little margin, there's not much room to foster enduring friendships and relationships. And there's a fourth reason that I want to illustrate with this. Uh, How many of you would say you are coffee uh, connoisseurs? You would love coffee. Maybe a a more mean way to say it is you're a coffee snob. Anyone willing to admit that you're a coffee snob, all right? Look, so maybe there's like seven of us, me included in the room. That means the rest of you that drink coffee are the Folgers and Maxwell House people, and I'm really sorry that you haven't seen uh, the better way yet. But, um, (laughs) But if you are a coffee snob, if you're a coffee connoisseur, then when you talk about coffee, you can talk about the notes, the finishes of how coffee, like what you can taste in it, the acidity. Uh, You know the difference between a Sumatran and maybe a Brazilian roast of this type of bean in this type of place. And I know you Folgers and Maxwell House people are like, come on, just give me dirty water. But I'm telling you, there's more to it than just dirty water, okay? And so I just want you to to imagine with me for a moment that you've been anticipating this incredible cup of coffee. And even if you're a Folgers or Maxwell House drinker, you're imagining a very, I know it's a a stretch, but you're imagining a very incredible cup of coffee. And and so you get ready to be served what you think is going to be the most incredible cup of coffee in the world. And the person only fills your cup up about a quarter of the way. And you're like, what is this? And then they come behind you like, this is the good stuff. But then they come behind and they fill it the rest of the way with water. And you're like, what did you just do? Like you diluted, you watered down a really great thing. And I think that's what we have done uh, with friendship. It used to be when someone would say, uh, Craig, uh, who are your friends? That my immediate response would go to those 10, 15, 20 people that I was closest to in life, that probably knew some of my joys and my sorrows, who knew my idiosyncrasies, who, who knew my good, my bad, and, and we kind of done some life together. Maybe they were friends from years before or friends now, and, and that's who I would, would name. But something happened with the advent of social media where uh, Facebook in particular took the word friend and they made us have Facebook friends, Right? And so now, in a given week, many of us receive multiple friend requests. And one of the first filters we go through is, do I even know this person? Do do, do I even know who they are? And yet we're connected with 
hundreds, and in some cases, even thousands of people that we barely know, but yet they've been labeled on Facebook as friends. And it may not seem um, that impactful, but the more we use friend to associate with something that is less intimate than friendship, it waters down our view and our understanding of what it means to be a friend. And I think that social media has given us this illusion of intimacy. You think about an illusion that a magician does, uh, they, or an illusionist does, they show you something, you're like, you know what, what they're showing me is not real. Like, that's not really it, but I can't figure it out. And social media, in some ways, presents an illusion of intimacy. Just think about this. Like, you can go online on social media, and you can have access to parts of people's lives that you only used to get with a really deep friendship. Like, I can see inside your home. I can see the pictures from your vacation that we used to have to sit across the table and be able to share with one another. Uh, I, can, I can see some of your thoughts and your opinions. Uh, I can see what you ate. I can see what you drink. And some of you love to post what you eat and what you drink. And here's the creepy thing for some of us is that we even see each other in our bathing suits because we post those pictures on social media. So now that's kind of awkward. And so now we have access to all these really intimate places of people's lives that gives us illusion of intimacy. And I'll tell you why we know it's an illusion is because when someone comes up to talk to you about what you posted online who doesn't have relationship, don't you get a little creeped out by that? But yet you're the one that shared it. It's like, why are you asking me about the biscuits and gravy I made last week using my grandmother's recipe? You don't know me. Well, you shared it on Facebook for millions of us to see. Like, why are you talking about the the picture of my kids swimming in the pool with me? Like, like you don't know me. And so there's this illusion of intimacy and it dilutes and it waters down our idea of being a friend. And so you combine those factors together and there's again this crisis. We don't fully understand what it means to be a great friend. We don't often experience great friendships. We begin to think that because we have hundreds and thousands of followers and friends on social media, that somehow we're connected and then our crisis and our calamity happens and what what happens then? We feel all alone. And how many conversations I've had with people who have hundreds if not thousands of friends on social media and they tell me how alone they feel because it's not fulfilling what it means to be fully in relationship and friendship with people. So how? How can we experience the type of friendship that, that, that is an antidote against the calamities of the world? And, and here's the beauty and the power of God's word is that he shows us. Because before Seneca ever cared about friendship, God cared about friendship. Example A, uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. The wise teacher Solomon tells us. He says that a man with many unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. Like if you have unreliable friends, like things are going to fall apart in a hurry. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a type of friend who will be closer than family. And this is pretty significant. That might sound significant to us. Our familial, rest, uh, um, familial relationships are, are a little jacked in our Western world. Uh, in, 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 in Solomon's day, like the family was the center of everything. Like, Oftentimes, brothers would work together in whatever the family trade was. There was an intimacy. There was a closeness shared between brothers. And yet Solomon says that there is a friend who sticks closer than even a brother. That there is a friend that you can have that is closer than family. And so my hope is that in the coming weeks, we'll see and be able to understand what that looks like, what we can look for in a friend like that, but even more, how we can be that type of friend 
that will stick closer than a brother. And the story that I want to use from Scripture is the story of David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan probably have the most famous friendship in Scripture. Uh, their story begins really for us and their friendship in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So if you have your digital or physical Bible, find that. Obviously, if you have a digital Bible, it's really easy. Open up your Bible app, uh, tap on a few things to get to 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament, find 18. Uh, if you're using a browser, um, I recommend BibleGateway.com. And you can just put in the search field the verses you want, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, if you have a physical Bible, then kind of go to the first fifth of it and uh, go past Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and you get to 1 Samuel. If you get to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you've gone too far. Uh, in 1 Samuel 18, uh, we're coming out of a pretty incredible story with David. Because 1 Samuel 17 tells the story of how David defeated Goliath. That's a story that even if you are not super familiar with church and faith, you probably have heard when David slayed this mighty giant, he showed incredible courage. He went in to fight and to defend Israel when nobody else would. That story unfolds in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the end of 1 Samuel chapter 17, a really just gory scene occurs where uh, David actually brings the head of Goliath to the king Saul. Why he brought the head, I don't fully understand. I'm not going to begin to, to try to explain that. I don't fully get it. Um, but he brings the head to, to Saul. And following that, here's what happens, 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, this is Saul's firstborn son, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. We're going to use these four verses kind of as our launching point to just examine um, just three characteristics, three ingredients over the next three weeks of how you have this type of friendship uh, that serves as an antidote against the hardships of life that, that allows us to stick with someone closer than a brother. And the first thing I just want to point out, and this isn't even one of the ingredients, is you just see this closeness and this intimacy that David and Jonathan share. If you look at verse 1 more closely, it says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. That phrase, one in spirit, is pretty powerful. Um, it's actually in Hebrew, a phrase that says, uh, attached to the soul would be how it's most directly translated. So it's this picture and beautiful and powerful language that, that Jonathan and David became attached. They became tied together at, at the deepest levels. Now understand, there's nothing in this language to suggest any type of romantic relationship. This is, this is simply talking about a bromance, okay? This, these are two guys, two dudes that just have this stuff in common and they, they care deeply for each other and God weaves together this beautiful, ties together this beautiful friendship. I hope that you've experienced at least one of those types of relationships in your life. I remember being a freshman at Johnson Bible College, now Johnson University, I was dropped off by my parents the first day of freshman orientation weekend. I go to these classes. They, they divide us into groups. We start to get to know each other. And the very first group I was assigned to, uh, there was another 18-year-old uh, named Caleb. 
And as Caleb and I started talking about life, it was clear that we had so much in common. And so from day one, in my experience as a college student, Caleb and I became incredible friends. Like, like we were coming out of the 90s at that point, and so there had been a popular show in the 80s called Bosom Buddies. And so people even made fun of us. Our professors called us Bosom Buddies. Like, like they would even joke and call us soulmates. We were just really good friends. And that's what we have with David and Jonathan. Like they care deeply for each other. They are attached at the soul. They are strung together. They are, they, are, they are attached at the hip, we might even say. They are just, they are, they're besties. They're BFFs. Whatever term you want to use, they're homies. They, they, are, they are with each other. They are so close. They are one in spirit. It's not just like on Jonathan's side. It's on David's side too. If, if, if you were to fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 1, you would find uh, David lamenting uh, Saul and Jonathan's deaths. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, David says that Jonathan's love for him was better than the love of all the women. David had multiple wives, and yet Jonathan's love, Jonathan's friendship stood out. How can we have that type of friendship? How can we have that type of relationship with someone else to help us in the storms and the calamities of life? tells us that Jonathan loved him as himself. That's in verse one, as well as in verse three. How how did David and Jonathan foster such a close bond? And and here's what I would suggest to you is that they did it the same way most of us do it. If you think about David and Jonathan's life, they they had shared passion. Like they they had shared things that they loved together. We see David's story with Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, where he had this passion for the defense of Israel, the proclamation of God and his greatness, and so that led him with courage to, to go into battle and fight the Philistine giant when no one else would. But did you know that Jonathan was a man of courage who couldn't stand to see God misused or abused, his people unprotected? If you rewind even before David and Goliath to 1 Samuel 14, you find a powerful story about Jonathan at a place called Michmash. Jonathan, his father Saul, and the army of Israel is camped below these cliffs that lead up to this Philistine outpost, these people that are harassing Israel. And, and, and Saul's not doing anything about it. The king of Israel is a coward. And, and what does Jonathan do? He gets up and he takes an armor bearer and they scale the cliffs together And together, the two of them take out the whole Philistine outpost. He was a man of incredible courage. They shared this passion. They shared experiences. Like Jonathan was part of the army of Israel that day when the Philistine giant falls and they rout the rest of the Philistine army. They shared space. After David, um, you know, killed Goliath, Saul grew jealous and he kept David in, with him in his palace. He wouldn't let him get out of his sight. Well, guess who also is living there? Jonathan, they share this common space. And even more significantly, they shared some common conviction as it related to God and faith. They both wanted to worship and to honor God. And I will just share this with you. If, if you wanna have the deepest, most rich experience of friendship, faith acts like an accelerant on that. Like, like faith allows you to go deeper, faster with people when it comes to relationship because you have this common bond about what matters most in life. Now, don't hear this. I'm not suggesting that if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, that you can't have deep friendships Um, because there are people 
watching right now, there are people watching online who know that they have deep relationships and you've never made, a rela- never made a decision to put your faith in Jesus. You can have deep connections and friendships with people. But I'm just suggesting that when you have faith, it takes it to a whole nother level. In fact, when you have faith in common, oftentimes it just gets you faster into understanding the shared experiences and passions and, um, and spaces that you share and you develop great relationships. For those of you that are moving on to new schools this year, for those of you that are, are moving into new jobs, you're gonna be sharing spaces with people. There's, a, there's an opportunity to have new friendships. And as you share passions and convictions, if you have faith together, you'll see those relationships just take off. We need to have relationships with people who don't yet know Jesus. We need to have friendships with people who don't yet know Jesus. But understand that when you have faith in common, it will grow faster and it'll be a deeper and richer experience of friendship than you've ever experienced before. We see that in David and Jonathan, and there's some clues here in David and Jonathan's friendship that we see on display between chapters 18 and really the end of 1 Samuel that help us see what these ingredients are. And I just want to end today by giving you the first ingredient we see in their relationship um, that's also um, can be in ours and help us have deep friendship. And that's this. If you want to have deep friendship, great friendships that serve as antidotes against calamity, encouragement. Encouragement is an essential ingredient. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, Once David comes to live with Saul, uh, and Saul grows more suspicious and more jealous of David, who will be the next king, Saul actually starts to try to end David's life. And so David, within just a few chapters, within just a few months, ends up on the run as Saul hunts him down to try to kill him. And so David's often in hiding. And in 1 Samuel 23, David is in hiding in a place called the Desert of Ziph at a place called Horesh. And here's what we read, 1 Samuel 23, 14. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the Desert of Ziph, Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Verse 16, Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. If that's not a picture of a friend who encourages, I don't know what is. David is weary. When you read the verses preceding this, the stories preceding this, you see that David has been on the run for a long time. David is weary. He's just been sold out by the people he had been hiding with prior to this. And what does Jonathan do? When he gets word of where his friend is, knowing that his friend is weary, knowing that his friend is hurting, knowing that his friend is facing hardship, he goes and he finds him. I can't imagine what that reunion was like when David's hiding out probably in a cave in the hills of the desert of Ziph, and and he hears that familiar voice. 
his friend, his buddy showed up. His wingman came to the rescue. Like, like he is there. Can you imagine the hug? I mean, if that's not a big bro hug with huge slaps on the back, I don't know what is. Like, they, they just, they just like, must have embraced. Like, like, Jonathan comes to be present. How encouraging would his presence have been for David? But Jonathan doesn't stop by just showing up when David's hurting. He speaks. He gives words of encouragement to lift his spirits. Do you know how critical, I know you do, how critical encouragement is to a deep and lasting friendship? When have you had someone who knows that you're hurting, who has taken the time to show up and to be near, who has taken the time to speak words into your lives, to remind you of who you are and what you're capable of and and what they value in you? You know how that strengthens you, how that lifts you up. Someone who shows up and maybe they give you a small gift or they, they show up with a meal or they show up to listen. That's encouraging, And that's an element in David and Jonathan's friendship. That's that's how they were able to be so close is that they encouraged one another. Who's encouraging you? You want to know who your closest friends are? In a world of discouragement and criticism, they're the people who encourage you. Those are your closest friends. You want to know what type of friend you are to others? Are you encouraging? Are you intentional? Do you speak into other people's lives? Do you, do you show up and be present with them in difficulty? That's the type of friend God calls us to be. It's the type of friend we see in David and Jonathan, a willingness to show up, to encourage with their presence and with their words. But there's even more here because there's some special words that Jonathan shares. Verse 16 ends with that phrase, helped him find strength in God. That idea of finding strength in God shows up a few other places in the Old Testament. Uh, One of them, you will recall, uh, although it's worded differently, is found in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9. Earlier this summer, uh, we preached through Nehemiah and Ezra in late spring. And I shared with you at the time that one of my favorite prayers of Nehemiah is in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9, where Nehemiah simply does this. The text says, Nehemiah prayed, strengthen my hands. He looks to God to provide him strength. And that very same phrasing is used here. Jonathan went to help David find strength in God. And how did he do that? He pointed him to the promises of God. Verse 17, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. And how does he know this? He says, you will be king over Israel. David had been anointed by Samuel. Jonathan knew that that God's purposes would not be thwarted, that that, that his promise would ring true. And so he reminds David of the promise of God. You know that some of the deepest encouragement you can bring to people is by reminding them of the promises of God. Is when your friends are going through hardship, you can be that encouraging friend by intentionally searching the scriptures and identifying small passages that you can speak into their lives that you can text them, that you can email them, that you can write in cards and notes to encourage them and lift them up and remind them of whose they are and who they are in him. Reminding people the promises of God is so incredibly strengthening. It's rich encouragement. That's something that I would encourage you to do. If you, if you, if you don't know what 
scriptures you would use. Here's one of the easiest ways to start. If you don't know where to turn in the word of God, here's, here's a hack for you. If you Google encouraging someone in grief, Bible verses to encourage someone in grief, guess what will happen? You'll get a list of websites that have a list of Bible verses that, that are good to encourage people in grief. And you can read through those and you can ask God, God, lead me to this verse that, that my friend really needs. And, and you can pick one out and you can choose to send that to them. Encouraging my friend who's overcoming addiction, encouraging my friend who, who, who's struggling with parenting. Like you, you put those things in and put Bible verses with that and you'll find a whole list of verses that you can use to send to people. And if you wanna take real immediate action with this message, you could do it right now. You could search, you could text, you could leave this place and you could call, you could pick up a card and you could write, you could show up at someone's door and you could listen and you could speak. And together we could encourage one another and help them find strength in God. I don't think it's hard to see why David and Jonathan's friendship can teach us in a world that's suffering on what it means to be a really good friend, in a world that's hurting for encouragement, one of the ways that you can step in is to be that encourager. So here's the friend request. Don't just be loosely connected to people with an illusion of intimacy, but choose to lean in and to be that encourager who shows up when life is hard, who speaks words of life and truth when life is hard. We talk a lot here about what it looks like to follow Jesus, and one of the revolutionary ways we can follow him is by being encouragers in a world of discouragement and criticism. We can separate ourselves apart. The world is, in some ways, quite literally dying for encouragement, for people to come alongside them and to speak the words of hope and truth into their life, and you can be that. Who will you encourage? As you look out, I know you can look at your own stuff, you can look at your own calamity, but you can't control what people are doing to you. Who do you know that's hurting? How can you lift your eyes to them? Who is it you can encourage today, tomorrow, this week? What friend in your life is facing hardship that is waiting on someone to speak those words of life to them? I'd encourage you to write it down and to make that your next step. And the final thing I want to encourage you with is that when we talk about friendship, while David and Jonathan rise to the surface often in conversations related to the word of God and friendship, um, I think we all ultimately know that the very best friend of all is Jesus. There's a reason why there was a hymn written, what a friend we have in Jesus. Think, think about all the things that people could have picked out about Jesus's life. The religious leaders on one occasion who have witnessed Jesus, they've witnessed him teach, they've had struggle with his teaching, they've witnessed his miracles, they've witnessed his life. And what's one of the claims they make about him? Look at him. He's a what of sinners? He's a friend. There was something in how Jesus treated people that said, this man is a friend. He's a friend of sinners, and that bothered them, but he was a friend. And I would say that some of the things we see in David and Jonathan's life, we just see an absolute perfection in Jesus. You want to talk about encouragement? a willingness to be present with people when they're hurting. Hello, Jesus models that. And then what does he do when he ascends to heaven? He sends his spirit to live with us and abide with us and to be with us no matter what we encounter. Talk about encouraging words. How many times have the words of Jesus, the words from a parable, words from the Sermon on the Mount, the words in the word of God encouraged you and lifted you up? 
Like Jesus knows how to be the friend, the ultimate friend that we all need. And when people enter into friendship with Jesus, it changes their life and it changes our world. The sinners that Jesus was friends with, guess what? Some of them became disciples. Some of them went into whole towns like the woman at the well and told people what Jesus had done for them. Some of them traveled across the world to tell people about him. Thinking of Paul who meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus changes lives. He's changed mine. His friendship has changed my life. I know that any moment I can speak to him, I know that he is with me. His words encourage me. And my hope is that if you don't know him, you'd meet him too. And he makes it... He makes a way for you. He offers you his friendship. He offers you his saving grace if you would come and you would believe and you would repent and you would follow. And if you would like to know more about that, I'm happy to start the conversation at the front of the room after our closing song. You're, you're welcome to email us, connect at lebanonchristian.org. You can scan the QR codes in our building that say let's connect. You can fill out a hard copy of the connection card at any of our communion stations and put them in the offering box. And we will start the conversation to help you find the friend of all friends, Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the witness of David and Jonathan's friendship. And God, I pray that as we lean into their story and even more into the life of your son, that, that we would find those friendships that are antidotes against the hardships of the world that we would find our, our souls, our, our lives knit together with others uh, to just enjoy the rich intimacy that's not an illusion, that it's real. God, for those that have yet to experience your friendship, God, draw them to you. Give them the courage to ask their friend who already follows you. Give them the courage to speak with someone here. Give them the courage to send the email, to scan the code. And God, let's, let's help people experience you. It's in your name we pray and trust. In the name of Jesus, amen.